Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. This episode is one part of my hour-long NPR show heard every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, everything your dog wants you to know, as well as the Cat Bible, everything your cat expects you to know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who's created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the Foreman family-owned pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. I am so delighted for another one of my wonderful filmmakers from the New York Dog Film Festival to join me on the air from Nashville, Tennessee. Alex Estrella has made a really touching, moving, interesting movie called Underdogs about incarcerated men and the dogs they're training to be to be service animals. Alice, you made a really good movie, and it it had was full of surprises. The men, the dogs didn't surprise me, right? Dogs are always reliable to be <laughs> dog-like, but the men were fascinating, and and you were in, and it was. Set in St. Louis, San Luis Obispo in California. That's where the the prison is. Correct. Yeah. Thank you for the kind words, by the way. <laughs> well, you did a great job. It was a very uh, thank you. A very competitive year. It had over sixty entries, and I've had films in the festival over the years. This year's the seventh annual, and I've had a number of them about dogs in prisons and what the prisoners learned and could do with those learned from and could do with those dogs. But you came at it from a really wonderful perspective as a documentary filmmaker. How did you wind up knowing about this program? Yeah, so um, it's it's a really cool, fortuitous um, way that it ended up. So I was promoting, um, I was at a film festival in San Luis Obispo promoting my first documentary, Trial by Fire, which focuses on inmate firefighters and um you know, kind of telling their tale. Oh, and, wait, before you before you go any further, we've yeah. all kind of heard about it because since you made that movie, there have been many, many, many more California wildfires. And I think it, it has mm-hmm. come to light that some of those firefighters are actually incarcerated men. Right, right. And so, you made the, a yeah. film about that. Yes, yeah, that was my first short documentary. Um, and... Yeah, it was like, you know, I saw the news coverage from the local news stations and it was just B-roll of these guys with no interviews. And so right. that's why I really wanted to, yeah, just talk to inmates and get their side of the story. What giving in for both movies, like what giving back to the community through firefighting, through training service animals meant to them, how it impacted their life and, you know, what their future, what it meant for their future. And um, yeah, so it just 
it was great really, topics. Uh, I mean, really wonderful topics because <laughs> we all think of prisoners as bad guys, period, full stop, bad guys. Right. And their humanity right, is, sure. is eclipsed by how they're made to live, which is the whole point of the incarceration. It's not really to rehabilitate them. Uh, let's be honest. Um, although your mm -hmm. film certainly shows a large measure of rehabilitation. So there you were at the San Luis Obispo Film Festival with your first short and... Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Trial by Fire, my first short, was showcasing there. And after the screening, it was a great turnout, great audience questions. And so after the screening, a lady um, calls me aside or, or pulls me aside. She's like, can I talk to you privately? And I was like, yeah, of course. And she told me about um, our main character in the film of Underdogs, Mike, uh, who she was friends with, who, you know, had just been released a year prior and had a very fascinating you know and we of course go into it in underdogs but it's a very like fascinating incredible journey himself and she told me about his story and how he continually uh checks in on the guys who are still incarcerated and you know provides them with support and she just told you know she said um, you should connect with him and maybe you could make something happen and that's what we did uh, i got into contact with mike and you know got to become friends with him and through that relationship, um, got access to the California men's comedy where uh, Underdogs primarily takes place and got to interview um, Wesley and Chris, the incarcerated guys. And yeah, it was just a, um, it was an incredible day. Uh, a fun, yeah, a fun fact, um, but not many people know because it's not, you know, we don't really feel the need to explicitly say it in the film, but we only had one day to shoot at the what? prison for Underdogs. Really? Yeah. Wow, yeah. you crammed a lot into a day because it didn't, gave no impression of being hurried, rushed, or happening in a compressed amount of time. That's that's really quite an accomplishment, <laughs> but I, it's also an accomplishment to be allowed to shoot at all. Prisons are pretty yeah. strict about that kind of thing. What was curious is that that the guy who becomes, in a sense, your narrator, isn't he? I mean, he speaks Correct. to the camera. I thought, okay, is that Alex? Is that the filmmaker? Oh my God, the filmmaker has been in the prison too. Okay, well, that's interesting. It was wonderfully confusing because being a documentary, it's people's stories as they want to tell them. And he and he was a very attractive man too, which is kind of irrelevant, but he didn't look like some scary thug, you know, completely tatted up over his eyeballs or something, you know, like you, like these pictures you see of, of scary incarcerated people sometimes. He seemed like, the guy who could, you know, just smooth and comfortable in his own skin. Mm -hmm. And and it seems from underdogs that some part of that came from the dog program. Or was he not in the dog program? Did it come later? Yeah, no, it came later. He was actually incarcerated um, for, I think, a majority of his, of, of his incarceration at San Quentin, um, which is a pretty, you pretty know, severe. notorious yeah. prison, yeah, up in northern california but then um as he was getting towards his parole date uh, i believe he was moved down to the california men's colony where they didn't have the dog program up at san quentin it was only at a san luis obispo which is a more medium security like less less strict right. prison if you will um and so that's i think where he got in contact with the dog program and there was a whole Similar to the firefighting program, there was, uh, you know, eligibility requirements and application. So I think, um, yeah, actually, I know from what we gleaned, a lot of guys 
um, apply to become in the program, but a lot get rejected as well. So it's very um, prestigious in the uh, world of the in the prison world to be afforded into one of those programs like firefighting or uh, training service animals. And the guys who, you know, get in are very obviously very uh, grateful for that opportunity to have that contact with that outside world. And, and, and also it's a motivator if you've been chosen to prove that you were worthy of it. What's, what's sort of interesting, it, it just sort of flashed in my mind that in the military, a lot of, of people in the military want to be canine handlers. It, it's highly right. desirable, not to every single person, but in general. And it's very selective and very prestigious to be chosen to be a canine handler, to work with an already trained detection dog or personal security dog, whatever that dog might be trained to do. So it's interesting that dogs in, in both cases become a kind of a coin of the realm, that that when chosen to work with a dog who's, who's going to do, in the case of the underdogs, good work on the outside, it makes it makes you to be more of a chosen person. You're validated. I, I think what the film gets across is the incredibly low self-esteem of the people in there. But by their own admission, it's not like I'm not playing, you know, Dr. Freud. They talk about it mm -hmm. and they, they describe that they have killed somebody or some people. And it's pretty chilling. Now, when you were interviewing them and or the firefighters, d were you kind of numb to that or did you think i am i am i kind of glamorizing or glorifying somebody who did this heinous act or am i just trying to show their humanity i mean as a documentary filmmaker you're no. intended to be objective but what were you feeling when you were shooting it, it was, it's kind of the, the the men seem gentle and and well spoken and they adore mm -hmm. these dogs and are really devoted to them and then they say what their crime was i'm like oh my goodness gracious how did you feel right um, yeah, I, you know, personally just wanted to humanize them because, um, I think, it, and it wasn't really forced upon me by anyone or any, you know, like agenda. I just really thought that, you know, through both programs, through the firefighting, through the service animals, that you know, these are guys who have made mistakes and pretty obviously very severe mistakes, but especially in Mike's story, I think that was a big, um, you know, kind of eye-opening uh, experience for me when he told me his story before, um, you know, off camera, before he did the uh, interview that's included in the final cut. But he told me and what, you know, the, what went down and, um, you know, essentially like when he committed his crime, he was 15 years old living on his own and, uh, you know, off a lot of drugs. And to be in that mindset and again, obviously it's a horrible crime, but you know, you're, you're so not only, you know, be those circumstances, like the circumstances of being kind of kicked out of your house on, you know, doped up on a bunch of stuff, but also like biologically what's going on at that time. Um, as a know, 15 year old, you changing mean, puberty. Yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. As a 15 year old. Um, and that's a lot of those guys, you know, committed. I mean, you can go just if, you know, people like my parents, you know, watch like the investigation discovery stuff and whatnot. And you look at a majority of those crimes and they take place when, you know, these, these people are just, they're, they're kids. They're not even adults yet. They're like 18, 15, 20, you know, and it's been scientifically proven your mind's not done developing until you're 25. Right. So I think 
you know, and um, when you're that young and it's, I just don't think you're fully in control. So I think that, I, I mean, it's obviously, yeah, that everyone, um, that they're obviously serious mistakes. Like we've all made our mistakes and those are definitely the more serious ones, but I just have, I just have a lot of compassion for those guys. Cause it's like, you know, I've been in situations where, you know, I think a lot of people have where you could get caught. If you got caught doing something, you could have easily winded up in jail. Like at that age, you know, we do full of shit when we're, um, when we're younger and, um, yeah. So I just really empathize with those guys because, you know, they happen to, it just led them to, unfortunately, um, you know, they, they had a, they made a, the wrong choice, but, um, and I think through underdogs, especially a lot of like Wesley and Chris and obviously Michael, our main characters, um, talk about, you know, having so much time to reflect on those choices, um, really gave them a lot of perspective and working with the dogs, especially gave them a lot of perspective, you know, kind of like redefine them, redefine for them what it meant to love and to be loved. And, um, I just think it's really, I don't want to say magical, it's, you know, kind of, but it, it's really something. It's really, it's like truly. It, magical some, makes some, it sound, yeah, too much like a Disney movie, but it is transformational. Right, I mean, because of your empathy and sympathy for them, which comes across, even though you're not meddling. I mean, you're a true documentarian. You are simply documenting who, who, what, where, and when. But there is a sense of these men have been improved by being in this prison, but particularly with these dogs. And they have a lot of self-awareness. I don't know if they have if they have some kind of counseling sessions when they're in there, but these dogs have been a big part of them being able to feel like they have any value. Yes, they did heinous mm -hmm. crimes. I mean, a lot of them were murderers. So it's all well right. and true to say, yes, gee, in puberty, you could definitely steal a six-pack and you really weren't supposed to drink beer. It's not the same as clubbing somebody to death, obviously. Right. But they understand that. They're not asking for forgiveness. They're trying to find ways to forgive themselves and make themselves mm -hmm. over differently, which isn't my perception of what prison does. I thought it just turned everybody more hardened and more tough and, mm -hmm. you know, meet more criminals and be more criminal when you get out. I mean, that's sort of like a generalized yeah. idea. But you do get the sense that these men's relationship, they talk a lot about their childhoods and why having mm -hmm. a dog made them feel in a positive way like a childhood, a few happy memories they <laughs> had or a childhood they never had. And you realize how compromised people's lives are and the value of pets in their lives to give them any touchstone to their own humanity. It sounds a little highfalutin, but you really see it in this film. You really see how these dogs allow these men to forgive themselves, or in the case of one man, he's not sure he can ever forgive himself. And he doesn't mm -hmm. feel that training these service dogs that are gonna go on and transform somebody's life, their redemption, but it's a step in the right direction, and they see it that way. They almost have a better right. attitude about their fellow man than a lot of people on the outside. I mean, that's sort of what I came away with a little bit, that they had had this time, as you said, to reflect and to take to take inventory for how that happened, mm -hmm. the, the vile deed, and and how to make the best of the time in there. It's uh, it's quite right. remarkable, and I didn't realize that your main narrator, 
who honestly for a little bit I thought, well, is that the filmmaker? Because he was so well-spoken and he seemed to be telling the story of, you know, from the outside in, going back in to help the guys, um, that he'd been in San Quentin, which is about as scary a, a prison, I suppose, as there is. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it, up there. For it's sure. up there. It's up there in the harsh, harsh ones. And yet he came out as a whole person who not only is part of society in a positive way, but went back to to show the guys that were still on the inside that they still mattered to him, that he hadn't written them off or erased them from his mind when mm -hmm. he got out, and that they still could be human. They could find a way to find their own humanity. It's a very touchy movie, and, and you didn't follow the dogs at all because that wasn't your intention, to see who they wound up with and, you know, the happy day when the dog is handed over to the person, let's say, in the wheelchair or whatever other job the dog was going to do. It's really more mm -hmm. about the men and, and the relationship, the human-animal bond with the dogs. It's great, Alex. Um, yeah. With just Thank a little you. minute left, are you? What's your, next, what's your next movie? Have you done it yet? Are you going to do it? Yes. Um, so I actually just released it a couple weeks ago. Um, it's called Unbreakable, um, continuing with the you words. Um, but it's about oh, right. um, one of my close um my mom's family friend for um, 48 years, Dr. Serena Young, who is a orthopedic surgeon um, who was stricken with polio when she was two years old and um, eventually was, par or was paralyzed from the neck down, uh, eventually regained the use of her upper extremities and went on to become one of the leading orthopedic surgeons in California performing oh all of her goodness. surgeries on crutches. Oh, um, my God. So Talk about chills. Right <laughs> you like those movies that get you right in the solar plexus. Good for you, those subjects, I should say. <laughs> Thank you. Alex Australia, you are a gift to the world and to, and to the power of documentary filmmaking. I really look forward to everyone seeing Underdogs in the Film Festival October 23rd, and I wish you great power and strength in going on to tell stories with film. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Tracy. I appreciate the time. Thanks for listening. There are a few more very special companies that make this show possible, and I hope you will support their support of my mission to entertain and educate. Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, is still making natural pet food I feed my own dogs. They also provide nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas and free food for the service dogs for veterans from Canines for Warriors. Cradle which makes CBD calming products to reduce stress for dogs using broad-spectrum CBD from U.S.-grown hemp formulated with a proprietary blend of nutraceutical ingredients. My Wanda Weimaraner couldn't get through thunderstorms without their cradle melts. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition and makes innovative foods like the hybrid dog food, Wisdom, which sometimes is all that Maisie Hotchner will eat. Evermore Pet Food, which is privately owned by two extraordinary women who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients and ship it to your door in frozen pouches. It's higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this shorter version of Dog Talk and Kitties 2 and will listen to other episodes sometime soon. <laughs>